The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. in New York, 11 a.m. in Davos, Switzerland, and here is your top five at five, a new trading week with the NASDAQ doing something for the first time in more than a year. An historic turning point in China as the country reports its first population drop in 60 years. Growth also down. So what happens to the price of oil? The self-proclaimed king of meme stocks picking another fight, this time with Alibaba. And Ryan Cohen planning ahead. On deck today, the bank earnings roll on as Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley get set to report. And Rev, sorry, charge up your engines. We mark a new milestone for electric cars in the world. It is all happening on this Tuesday, January 17th. This is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday morning, and let's get right now to your money on this holiday shortened week. Right now, futures, they are a little bit weaker, down a tenth or two, not a big deal. Earnings will be the driver today and most of this week. Now, all this coming off what has been a good start to the year for stocks. All the major averages are higher. Small caps are up 7% this year. A NASDAQ 100 up 5.5%. By the way, speaking of the NASDAQ 100, that index coming off its sixth winning session in a row. And that, my friends, its longest daily win streak since a 10-day stretch back in November of 2021. Got to go back more than a year. Now, this move comes up as bond yields come down right near the 10-year is at 3.55%. Let's talk energy. Now, China, it is starting to come back as a bigger buyer. By the way, we'll Talk about that in a few minutes with Dan Jurgen. And India continues to buy Russian oil at a record pace. All that is keeping a floor under prices, if not pushing them back up. Oil about ready to break back above $80 here. It's at nearly $85 overseas. Natural gas, though, it's staying low as warm weather hangs around the U.S. By the way, it was nearly or even touched 50 degrees in New York yesterday. I actually worked outside in just a long sleeve T-shirt. I went back historically, could not find a day in 20 years on January 16th where it was that warm. Wow. So that warmer weather, by the way, same thing happening in much of Europe, has cut demand by a ton. That is why prices have fallen. By the way, all of this, very good news for Europe and their energy crisis. They're using less natural gas, keeping those storage levels fulls. Keep your fingers crossed for warmer than average weather. That's the variable. All right. Meantime, in the world of crypto, get this. Bitcoin and Ether, yeah, they just continue to move higher. Maybe showing on the screen a little bit down now. But remember, that's kind of off nothing. Bitcoin is back above 21,000. Ether, excuse me, moving higher as well. So Bitcoin, even with all the Sam Bankman freed alleged fraud, FTX stuff, Bitcoin has gone from, what, 16,5 or 17 to over 21,000 in just a matter of a couple of months. 
All right, we're going to walk handling through or handle walking you through Europe and the Asia market, so let's do it. It was mixed overseas. Japan's market, they did climb more than 1%. Everybody's watching the Bank of Japan. They're kicking off their two-day monetary policy meeting today. Will they kind of go a different rate than the rest of the world? Investors also getting key economic data out of China, showing that country's GDP grew by 3% last year. And that 3% number was one of the slowest growth levels in decades. And listen to this. New data showing that China's population actually declined last year. It was the first drop since the early 1960s. Birth rates in China continue to fall. A big story there. All right, turning now to Europe and getting a look at the early trade as well. Again, we're not seeing huge moves. Earnings today and this week are going to decide it down a little bit, maybe one or two-tenths of one percent. All right, speaking of overseas, it is going to be a couple of big days from Davos, Switzerland, and the World Economic Forum. And we get to kick off CNBC's coverage with our first guest. That is Bain Capital co-chairman Stephen Pagliuca announcing his retirement after 34 years at the firm. Bain also out with a new deal this morning, exploring a public offering for Australia's second largest airline. Stephen also a co-owner of the Boston Celtics. You might remember him from such royal family visits as the one a couple of weeks ago at the Garden. He joins us now for a first on CNBC interview. Uh, Stephen, uh, great to see you again. We chatted in Boston a, a number of years ago, and you guys had just taken a big investment in Canada Goose. You're probably wearing one right now. That paid off in a massive way. Uh, congrats on your career and your retirement. What is next for you? You're not going to ride off into the sunset. No, I'm not good enough at golf to do that. So, so I'll be investing. I'll be a senior advisor to the firm, keep in touch with Bain Capital. Um, my family office is focused on, on biotechnology, space, and technology. So very busy, and I have a couple of sports teams. Atalanta, which just won 8-2 to two on uh, the most goals ever scored on, on Sunday night. Got to see him over in Bergamo. So I'll be focused on those activities. And uh, just uh, uh, I've just been a wonderful run at Bain Capital. I'm so, so fortunate to have been in such a great firm. And the Celtics, the only team in the NBA with over a 700 winning percentage. You're on a, you're on a roll. But will the private equity deal market, Stephen, be on a roll this year? Higher rates, still questions about China, questions about Europe's health, where you are with their energy crisis. How will private equity and deal making look the next 12 to 24 months? Well, I think we're looking at uh, maybe three major themes in the next five years. The first one's going to be this decoupling strategically from China. So it's not going to be everything, but it's decoupling essential things like medical supplies and chips. And you see the Chips Act. Uh, I was with Gina Raimondo last week. They're putting lots of money into making sure we can be self-sufficient for chips and medical equipment. I think the second thing that you're seeing is now pulling back of the money supply, you know, which we now have more normalized interest rates. Brian, you know, most of our lives, interest rates have been four to five percent. This has been a a very strange period since the crisis where they've been sub 1% on the T-bill. Uh, now they're kind of going back to normal, and I think we're going to see more volatility in that uh, as inflation goes up and down and the Fed plays with those rates. But I don't think we're going to see 1% rates anytime soon, so we've got to get used to that interest rate environment. And then finally, um, the whole energy transition issue is big because that's going to cause inflation. We're going to have to build a, a second infrastructure for energy. And I think we've underinvested in oil and gas exploration the last 10 years as those companies have been milked because of, 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 uh, of, the, of the current financial situation. So we're going to have to really figure out a plan with the government on, on how we do 
achieve carbon neutrality, but do that in a way where people still have heating and we can, we can have the economy function. So those well, are the issues facing us in the next five to ten years, and th- that will impact the next couple of years as well. Stephen, we could do a half an hour interview on just those topics alone. Sadly, we don't have time. We'll talk to Dan Jurgen in a few minutes about oil and gas. You bring up an excellent point. I mean, and I don't want to make it political, but the reality is what we hear from the administration. We need more oil. Why aren't they investing more money and producing more oil? But if you look on sort of the, under the hood of the financial markets, tell our viewers how difficult it is to obtain financing, particularly private financing, for big oil and gas infrastructure projects. I mean, there's so many regulations, and that's not corporate America whining. This is the office of the comptroller currency. All these things we don't think about make it a lot more difficult than it should be. Is that, is that a fair statement? Well, it's been difficult for two reasons. One, um, financiers lost billions of dollars on the shale boom. Uh, really, not, not many people made money on that. So that's, that's caused a pullback in terms of lending. And then Secondly, um, yeah, we do have to have policies to have a balanced approach, and hopefully there'll be financing available. The general finance markets are tough right now because interest rates are going up, and uh, and and prices really haven't adjusted down as much as they should. So so it's starting to happen. People are going to get used to this new normalized environment. The good news is, the banks are w- very well capitalized. Banks like J.P. Morgan. Bank of America, their balance sheets are very strong, so we're not in that situation. Um, most of the money that's been yeah. lost has been in equity, so that's not going to have a multiplier effect. Yeah, that's an excellent point that oil and gas was kind of like the airline sector for a long time. It's where capital uh, went to literally get put into a hole in the ground. You mentioned the <clears throat> excuse me, the energy transition, Stephen. I was just at a, uh, an energy conference two weeks ago. So much optimism around it from financing perspective because, in part, People viewed it as a couple, 10 or 100 billions of dollars in tax credits and incentives that are sitting around. How profitable is the transition going to be for Wall Street? I got the impression a lot of the oil guys were suddenly becoming solar guys. Well, I think the country needs to do it and, and uh, uh, you know, private enterprise needs to step up. And I think the government's doing the right thing, making us have that transition. Uh, you know, this generation, certainly the folks we hire into Bain Capital now are more concerned about the environment, than, which I'm very proud about, that, uh, than ever before. So we have to get this done, and it's going, to cost, it's going to cost money, but it's money we need to spend to save the planet. So I think it'll be a good investment environment. Uh, it'll be a little bit inflationary because you're going to have to maintain two structures for quite a period of time because this is a huge transition. Think about moving from, from oil and gas to solar and wind. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take quite a while and big investments and big infrastructure to get power to cars and factories and all the things we need power for. Yeah, well said. Almost building two separate grids side by side and then at some point bringing them together. Stephen, I can't count how many companies you have brought together. 34 years at Bain, built that into a powerhouse. Celtics, a powerhouse. Bruins. Stephen, really appreciate your time. Have a great conference. And uh, I hope we speak with you again on CNBC. It's great to see you again, Brian, and uh, I'm, I'm the only warm person in Davos because of, because of this great coat that comes from Canada Goose. So, so uh, we're doing well here. I'd like to see you out here. You're, you're sitting there in the, in, the, in the studio looking very, very warm, very calm. Very warm and toasty. Someday they'll let me into Davos. I just don't, I'm not sure they're ready yet. Stephen Pagliuca, thank you. Appreciate that. Have a great conference. Thank you. <clears throat> All right, now Thanks. to Washington, where the president remains under fire amid growing fallout after multiple sets of classified documents were found 
at both a little-used office in Philadelphia and his home in Wilmington, Delaware. In all, three different batches of classified material were uncovered, two in November and one in December. Yet those discoveries were not revealed to the public until recently and after the midterm elections. This has Republicans looking for a congressional investigation into the matter. Let's get the latest on where we stand right now. NBC's Bree Jackson joining us from Washington, D.C. Good morning, Bree. Good morning, Brian. Well, yeah, Republicans are demanding answers as sources tell NBC News that President Biden is frustrated with the ongoing backlash regarding the classified documents found. And he feels that the news uh, of this has not been handled well. President Biden once again ignoring questions from reporters regarding his handling of classified material. How do you think that the classified documents got into your boxes? Despite the silence, Republicans are demanding answers. Are there more documents? Is there an inventory of what the Bidens have that's still missing? We have no answers to many questions. Close to a dozen documents were found at Mr. Biden's private office in Washington, D.C., including at least one document marked top secret. There were also two batches discovered at his Delaware home, causing Republicans to send a letter to the White House requesting visitor logs citing serious national security implications. The White House and the U.S. Secret Service both saying they do not maintain those records because it's a private residence. This is so wrong. This is another. Another example of a two-tier system of justice in America, and this is one reason why Republicans are so outraged over this whole process and the hypocrisy of the Biden administration. The GOP is vowing to investigate the matter. We're getting a lot of whistleblowers, by the way. A special counsel is now reviewing the storage of records discovered at both locations. President Biden's supporters are standing firm. I think the president and his administration are cooperating, and, and I trust that they will continue to cooperate. The president's personal attorney insisting they cannot release certain details relevant to the investigation while it is ongoing. And the White House is blasting Republicans, claiming that they are politicizing the issue while saying that President Biden takes the handling of classified documents seriously. Brian. All right. Well, they they did wait a few months to reveal it. All right, Bree. Do we know if any records are kept for the president's private residence, excluding the visitor logs that you mentioned? Yet another question. If there's documents there, why are there not visitor logs? Yeah, well, the Secret Service is saying that they do do background checks on people that come uh, to the president's residence. However, they say that's information that they keep for a limited amount of time, Brian. Bree Jackson on a story that is no doubt not going anywhere. Bree, thank you very much. All right, we are not going anywhere either. And when we come back here on Worldwide Exchange, we're going back to Davos, Switzerland, and a one-on-one interview with Dan Jurgen. We'll get his take on the state of global energy markets, China, OPEC, and more. Plus, famous for his meme stock bets on names like Bed Bath & Beyond by Ryan Cohen, now setting his sights on Alibaba later on. Down, but not out, apparently. What the founders of the now-defunct Three Arrows Capital are up to and why they are on the hunt for deep-pocketed investors. But will they find them? We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich 
is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Imagine a beautiful afternoon. The sun is shining and you get to enjoy it all because you just sat down on your John Deere mower. The smooth ride lets you escape into your yard. Intuitive controls make you feel like you're one with the machine. And with attachments for every season, you can enjoy it all year long. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand what it's like to drive a John Deere mower, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. All right, welcome back. Well, while the sun is about ready to rise here, the sun has set in Hong Kong. It's a live look. It is 6.17 p.m. there in Hong Kong, the night just beginning. By the way, if you have not spent nights in Hong Kong, it is a truly remarkable place. Only one of the few places I've been that makes Manhattan look like uncrowded and rural. It, it is a city that literally does not sleep. Hong Kong, a truly remarkable place. All right, let's get some of this morning's top corporate and money headlines, including some big news. For electric cars, Silvana Hanau is here with that and more. Good morning, Silvana. Good morning to you, Brian. Well, Ryan Cohen, also known as the meme stocking and founder of Tui.com, has reportedly built a minority stake in Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba and is now, according to multiple reports, pushing for the company to speed up its share buyback plan. The exact size of the stake is not known at this time. Now, reports say Cohen first contacted Baba's board back in August to share his view. Its shares were deeply undervalued and that it could hit double-digit sales and nearly 20% free cash flow in the next five years. The founders of failed crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital are looking for investors in a new exchange that could capitalize on the growing list of bankruptcies in the crypto space. According to a pitch deck seen by CNBC, the new exchange currently being called GTX would be a trading platform exclusively dealing in the distressed debt of defunct digital asset firms like FTX. The hope is to be ready for launch by next month. And a new report says electric vehicle sales made up 10 percent of all new car sales last year worldwide for the first time ever, partly driven by strong growth in China and Europe. Global EV sales in 2022 totaled around 7.8 million units. That's an increase of nearly 70 percent from a year earlier, Brian. We're definitely seeing lots of EVs on the road. Not yet, not here as much yet. Right. Much faster in China, but For, we're getting there. Yeah. Uh, no, no. I mean, I, 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 I definitely see a lot I, on the road these days. Uh, you see one behind the wheel, Silvana. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You see a lot on the road. I do. Right, right here, Silvana. <laughs> yes, you do. Silvana Hanal saving the planet. Silvana, thank you very much. You got it. All right. We'll see Silvana in a few more minutes. All right. On deck. Football. And an NFL Wild Card Weekend finale, 20 years in the making. A lot of weird stuff happened last night. We'll talk about it coming up. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. 
Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back. Let's talk oil, gas, and energy, because when it comes to prices, there are going to be really two major factors going forward in the near term. Number one, how much China begins buying up oil again. And number two, whether OPEC will cut production again in the coming months because China posted its weakest economic growth in nearly 50 years. Now, China's U-turn in December scrapping the zero COVID policy is still boosting hope of a demand recovery for the full year, but it's going to be a slow slog in the beginning. Let's kind of tie it all together. Joining us from Davos as we continue our coverage of the World Economic Forum is Dan Jurgen, vice chairman of S&P Global. His latest book, of course, is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Dan, good to have you back on. I'm going to throw it right in there. You you sent us a graphic of China oil imports. I'd like to put that up um, because, you know, when when China, quote, reopened, it was all this optimism that demand was going to boom. That's not how it's going to be. How do you see China playing out the year? Right now, I mean, indeed, what I'm hearing here, Brian, is that that, in fact, on the commodity side, it is bouncing back faster than people would have thought. And so, you know, as you say, the China rebound is going to be a big factor that could tighten what is right now an oversupplied oil market in the first half of the year and an oil market that's tighter in the second half of the year. Yeah. And and when you say tighter, could that be tighter by 500,000 barrels a day, Dan, or could that be two to three million barrels a day? Because the world's got the former. I don't know if the world has the latter. Yeah. Well, of course, what's really weighing on the world oil market today is what's happening uh, with interest rates. And when I look at our PMIs, which measure you know, business looking forward, not back, you do see a uh, continuing slowing in business activity. You also see inflation weakening faster than people thought. So I think in the first half of the year, you still have uh, uh, the G- GDP, the interest rates really weighing. But then as we move into the second half is when you start to see the rebound or the expectation of a rebound. And by that point, China should be resurgent again because they've finally just, you know, as you said, they've scrapped the, the COVID policy and uh, it's kind of chaotic effect. But already one is hearing here, at least, that the, co- that the waves of COVID have already passed through Shanghai and Hong Kong. Yeah. In fact, some of the data is starting to come down. Thank goodness. Dan, doing this as long as you have, can you explain to our viewers and me as well, what the impact of higher rates and currency moves is on the price of oil? Because we talk so much about demand and supply and OPEC. But to your point, monetary and fiscal policy also matters. How much? Well, I think monetary and fiscal policy matter a lot. And at the end of the day, I think GDP wins out. And really, I, I say there are really two people who are really setting the price of oil right now. One is Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed, uh, metaphorically speaking, and Xi Jinping, uh, the president of China. But I think that uh, I think GDP wins out in, in the in the end. That's what, what we've seen again and again. And uh, that's where we are in oil prices. But once uh, demand really comes back, then you're back still in that issue of uh, uh, underinvestment in, in supplies in a tighter market. 
Yeah, and, and we talked about it earlier. I don't know if you were kind of – I know how the set works there, Dan. Maybe you kind of heard the interview with Stephen Pagluka of Bain at the top of the show or not. But we talked a little bit about the lack of incentive or desire to invest in oil and gas projects in the United States by private equity and Wall Street. And when I look at the Permian, and there's all this talk about the Permian's boom days are behind it simply because while it still is an amazing oil field, the money to pull the oil out of the ground simply is not there. Do you, do you agree with that? Or can the Permian have a second you know, well, sort of th- resurgence? Well, I mean, we're, what, at 12.3 million barrels a day. So by far, the U.S. is still the world's largest oil producer. But the message you, and that you hear, it, Brian, all the time from the producers is capital discipline, that they have to return more capital. And right now, what, the supply chain problems that afflict so much of the world economy, definitely there in terms of uh, oil and gas production, in terms of crews and so forth. And inflation is at work in the oil field, too. Costs are going up. So those are holding it back. But it is continuing to grow, and the, you know, but it's just not growing at the kind of rate we've seen in the past. But I think we're going to see continual growth over the year. Dan Jurgen joining us from Davos, Switzerland. China is a big factor. Thank Permian, we'll see, if, we'll see if the growth in that Permian you referenced will be enough to match what China is going to need as well. Dan Jurgen, appreciate it, my friend. Have a great day and a good conference. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, let's step outside of this for a bit and get a check on some of this morning's other headlines, including revelations of a scary near miss at JFK Airport a couple of days ago. Francis Rivera is in New York with that and more. Francis. Hi, Brian. Good morning. Over the weekend, a terrifying close call between two passenger planes on the runway at New York's JFK Airport. This animation shows a Delta jet on the bottom of your screen in red, about to take off Friday the 13th, when the pilot breaks moments before a possible collision with an American Airlines plane. The FAA released a statement saying Delta Flight 1943 stopped its takeoff roll approximately 1,000 feet before reaching the American Airlines aircraft. No one was hurt in the incident. Delta issued an apology to customers, provided overnight accommodations, and is investigating, along with the FAA and the NTSB. A large swath of California is getting a much-needed reprieve from weeks of relentless rain and snow. Residents are just beginning to assess the massive damage from that deadly onslaught that has killed 22 people since December. On Monday, at least 20 people were evacuated in Berkeley after a landslide swept through the area. The massive wall of mud and debris pushed its way into one home. President Biden will travel to the state on Thursday to survey the damage. Another storm is forecasted for the Golden State Wednesday, but it is expected to be the last major one for a while. Dak Prescott was lights out for the Cowboys, but kicker Brett Maher... uh, Maher Struggled under the lights. Maher missed an NFL record four extra points in the game. Still, Dallas sliced through the Buccaneers' defense, eliminating Tampa with the 31-14 win. So Dallas advances to the divisional round where two of their rivals clash on Sunday night. And we get our first look at the Chiefs in the playoffs. They take on Jacksonville. On Sunday, it is the Bills and Bengals. And then Dallas has to San Francisco to play the 49ers. So that is a lineup for you, Brian, and your headlines. We send it back to you. Yeah, and if you went to bed early, I did not because I'm not smart. The Dallas Cowboys kicker missed four extra points in a row. They're almost automatic. Four in a row, Francis. I don't think that's ever been done. It hasn't, but they made it. They made it. They're in. So we'll see where they can take it from here. Didn't matter. 
Yeah, thank goodness it didn't matter because you don't want to be that kicker. And maybe the last time we saw Tom Brady in a football uniform. Francis Rivera, thank you very much. Sure thing. All right, coming up, Microsoft adding a little teeth to its AI cloud offerings as it explores a multi-billion dollar investment in chat GPT. Stick around. It's been a solid start to your money in 2023, but after two straight weeks of gains, there is one sign that trouble could be ahead. We'll show it to you. Get ready for another round of bank earnings. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley up the bat. Chris Whalen is here to read the tea leaves, what the results are telling us thus far, and more headaches for Elon Musk and Tesla. His employees at one of its gigafactories reportedly sound the alarm on working conditions. It is Tuesday, January 17th, 5.33 a.m. This is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome and welcome back, everybody. Good Tuesday morning. As we said, about 5.33 here on the East Coast. Thanks for joining us. Let's get right now to your money on this holiday shortened week. And we are seeing futures right now not moving a whole lot, maybe down a touch, one or two-tenths of one percent. A lot of time to turn it around. Fair value is actually in the green All this coming off what has been a good start to the year. All the major averages are higher with small caps. If you have not been paying attention, the Russell 2000 is up 7% this year. The NASDAQ 100 up nearly 5%. But stay focused because it could be an interesting week technically for the S&P 500. Look at this chart. Hard to see, but that purple line is the 200-day moving average. As you can see, We are bumping up again, testing that 200-day moving average. Now, this has happened a few times in the past year or so. You can see that. And every time that the market, the blue line, has hit the 200-day moving average, the purple line, it has failed. And stocks have come down. Test, fail, test, fail. So right there at that 200-day, now if we move above it and hold, it becomes resistance or support, I should say. And that could be a good sign. But either way, it looks like kind of an inflection point. For stocks, definitely something to watch, especially as earnings roll out. All right. Well, now let's get back to Sylvain Hanau with more key headlines for you on this Tuesday, including a key meeting for Janet Yellen and maybe a big new venture for one Anthony Scaramucci. Sylvain Hanau, back with those. Brian, good morning. Well, let's start with this. Well, Tesla is facing fresh criticism, this time over working conditions at its plant in Berlin. According to reports, a local union in Germany claims workers have complained of unreasonable working hours and fears fears of speaking out against the situation. Now, the report adds that German politicians have expressed concern about the allegations and are calling for an investigation. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is set to meet with her Chinese counterpart this week in a continued bid to ease tensions between the two countries. The Treasury announcing yesterday that Yellen plans sit down with Vice Premier Liu He in Zurich, Switzerland tomorrow. The meeting comes after the Biden administration blocked the sale of advanced computer chips to China and as it considers a ban on investment in some Chinese tech companies. And Anthony Scaramucci is getting behind a new venture from the former president of FTX's U.S. arm. Scaramucci revealing the support for Brett Harrison's new crypto firm in an exchange on Twitter. Bloomberg reporting over the weekend that Skybridge Capital founder will use his own personal money in backing Harrison's new startup. Now, despite Scaramucci's firm likely have its investments into FTX wiped out from its collapse, Brian. 
Anthony Scaramucci, the uh, consummate entrepreneur and reinventor of himself. <laughs> yep, exactly. Savannah, thank you very much. <laughs> you got it, Bray. All right. All right, now let's talk earnings because we are all gearing up for more big banks to roll out their numbers. I mean, look at that snazzy earnings central. I don't, maybe it's, is it central? I don't know. With numbers from Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley reporting before the bell this morning, all this comes after other banks like J.P. Morgan and Bank of America reported their numbers last week. For more now on what we could expect, let's bring in Christopher Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, if you weren't awake before, that, that animation probably, probably, probably woke you up. It did to me. I did not know that it was coming. Uh, what are you expecting from Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs? Can Goldman get its act together? They just laid off more than 3,000 people. Well, Goldman has gone through a process of remaking themselves, to your earlier comment, uh, particularly with respect to the bank side of the business. And I've said for many years that it would be probably a good idea for them to buy a bank, uh, get some people in there that know how to run the bank side of the business, because their performance, both in terms of their funding costs, which are high, and their uh, credit costs on their loan book, which are also quite high, are just not impressive, Brian. They, they need to get their act together. And I think the way you do that is to go buy some core deposits. If you look at Morgan Stanley, uh, Gorman has achieved stability. He has a big enough book in terms of funding. He has a lot of assets to manage. And then he has the investment bank, yeah. which is kind of the cream on the top. Are, are you talking about buying... <clears throat> Chris, would you be talking about buying like a, a big <clears throat> regional bank or like a, a yes. mid-major? Like a, and I'm not going to ask you to speculate, but like, like a PNC or a U.S. bank or something like that? Or would it be more of a smaller player? No, I've, I've uh, used names. Smaller is key. The reason I love key is that it's $100 billion in Main Street core deposits, stable funding, for commercial real estate. I think that fits very well with Goldman, and it's not too big that it would dilute the existing shareholding and really change the culture of Goldman. If you're talking about a merger with PNC or U.S. Bank, then Goldman is going to disappear because a bank that size, I think the Fed would require that you essentially conform the culture and the internal systems with a bank kind of an environment, not a broker-dealer, which is the way they're managed today. But you think a key corp, ticker KEY, could be a, an attractive yes. target for a Goldman? It's funding. Yeah, the major difference between Goldman and competitors like Morgan Stanley and then Schwab, which is the seventh largest bank in the country now, by the way, is funding. Charles Schwab has the lowest funding cost of any bank in the top 25. <clears throat> so they don't necessarily pair off as a comp with Goldman. Goldman is much more markets-focused. But as the asset gatherers go, which is what I'd like to call them, they are kind of the exemplar now. Morgan Stanley has more market risk, and then Goldman has a lot more market risk. So, you know, to me, Goldman is missing the bank leg of the stool, uh, much like Citi is mm -hmm. missing the investment side of the stool in terms of asset management. Well, didn't, I mean, with Marcus, didn't Goldman kind of try? And that's part of the problem. And I'll ask you this. Does Goldman need a change at the top? I'm hearing rumblings more and more that people are not real pleased with David Solomon as CEO. Again, just a couple of people's uh, opinion to me, but I'm hearing it. Look, David's an old friend and colleague. I think he's had a run, 
But growing a bank organically, Brian, is difficult, especially in this market, especially when you're as large as Goldman is and you've got to go for large transactions. I mean, you see what happened with Jamie Dimon and Frank. They have to do deals. And so eventually they miss something. Uh, and I think Goldman, unfortunately, the trillion and a half dollars of balance sheet, but, you know, less than 200 billion in bank, they are vulnerable in terms of funding. Christopher Whalen, Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, really appreciate your views. A big topic and a very timely. Chris, thank Have you. Have a good week. Timely because do not miss. Thank you. You too. Do not miss conversations with the aforementioned CEO of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon, as well as the CEOs of Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan. They are all, of course, where else? In Davos. That coverage 6 a.m. Eastern time. Big banks. Lot to discuss. All right. On deck. Get your pens or iCloud notes ready. We are going to give you one big bank's top 11 sector stock picks for the year. It is your RBI and content you will not see or hear anywhere else. All right, welcome back. Good Tuesday morning and time now for your morning RBI. And today we're going to get random but interesting on some good old-fashioned stock picks. And while it has been a good start to the year so far for the major averages, sometimes you got to look a little bit deeper. So Bank of America is out with its one pick per sector favorite stock list for the year. They choose one stock in each of the 11 S&P 500 sectors based on aspects like free cash flow, domestic versus international exposure, perceived value and more. And while it's an interesting list and could do great this year, keep in mind, you take that fox off, please. Keep this in mind, while these picks last year did outperform the overall S&P 500, only four actually beat their respective sectors. So these were not locks by any means, kind of like my Chargers the other night. That said, some really interesting picks by B of A this year. So you ready? We're going to run you through them. And don't worry if you're on the driving, you're on the radio, you can't write. We will repost this segment. All right, here they are. Now we'll show you Fox. Fox Corp in communications. They like, Bank of America likes the sports betting aspect to what they call an, quote, old media company, stock down 21% this year. In consumer discretionary, Bank of America likes tractor supply. They note the great balance sheet and dividend growth make this an attractive retailer. In consumer staples, Walmart, they call Walmart a, quote, consumer trade down beneficiary. In energy, Bank of America likes ExxonMobil. They like the higher oil beta versus Chevron, meaning it'll move more as oil moves as well as free cash flow yield. By the way, of the 11, this is the best performing stock over the past year. Bank of America also notes Exxon's high ESG meter. Get that. All right, in financials, they like Arch Capital as an insurance and reinsurance company quietly booming up 34% in a year. They call this an inexpensive out-of-consensus pick. In healthcare, they like Humana. Analysts like the Humana growing earnings story. In industrials, Bank of America's one pick is Honeywell, which they think could be a big winner from the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as decarbonization experts. In information technology, it is analog devices. The analysts there call this a strong free cash flow generator that trades at a discount to the sector. In materials, they like Mosaic, a fertilizer company in a very tight and strong global market which generates a lot of free cash flow. And the final two, 
one pick per sector selections from <clears throat> Bank of America in real estate. They like Well Tower. Who is Well Tower? Well, it's a senior housing real estate investment trust that Bank of America believes will bounce back from COVID. They do pay a 3.4% dividend yield. And last but certainly not least, Duke Energy. <clears throat> they also like Duke's dividend yield. They call it a high-quality name, trading at a discount to some other metrics. So there you go. 11 picks, one for each S&P 500 sector, of course. We are going to track these names on our facts at screens and periodically update you on how they are doing because that's what we should do. You throw them up there, you got to track them and see how they did. Hopefully it'll be random and profitable. All right, we're not done yet. We're going to keep the stock picks coming with Diamond Hills. Heather Brilliant with some of the under-radar names that she likes, including a big used car play. And by the way, if you haven't already, be sure to follow our podcast on all the major platforms. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Six stories you might have missed as we close in on the 6 a.m. hour. Here we go. China reporting a 3% GDP growth for 2022. And by the way, that is a sharp drop from the 8.1% pace in 2021. And it marks one of China's slowest growth rates in decades. Billionaire investor Ryan Cohen is building a minority stake in Alibaba. Cohen is pushing for more stock buybacks by the Chinese tech company, saying it could reach double-digit sales growth in the next five years. Microsoft reportedly widening access to popular open artificial intelligence software ChatGPT. According to Reuters, the news comes as Microsoft adds to the $1 billion stake in the OpenAI project that it announced back in 2019. Good news on the electric car side, EVs making up 10% of all new cars sold globally last year. Preliminary research shows that global EV sales in 2022 totaled nearly 8 million units, up 68% from a year ago. Founders of bankrupt crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital are pitching, you guessed it, a new company focused on digital currency bankruptcy claims. According to documents reviewed by CNBC, the firm is aiming for a February launch. And the FAA is investigating a near miss between two commercial jets that occurred at JFK Airport on Friday. A Delta Airlines flight had to stop its takeoff when an American Airlines flight crossed across the same runway. Nobody was injured. Perhaps a scary and close moment nonetheless. All right, let's wrap up the day. Gear you up for the trading week ahead. Today you get earnings out of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Citizens Financial, and United Airlines. We're also watching the Tesla shareholder lawsuit against Elon Musk as jury selection for that trial gets underway on Wednesday. You will get the Fed's beige book as well as data on mortgage applications and home builder sentiment as well as earnings out of Discovery and trucking company J.B. Hunt. Thursday, the earnings roll on with results out of Netflix and P&G along with housing starts and building permits data. We're also going to hear from Boston President, Fed President Susan Collins. And that is not all. On Friday, it'll mark the halfway point for Joe Biden's presidency. We've also got the earnings out of SLB, formerly known as Schlumberger, and data on existing home sales. Well, if you weren't already tired, you probably are now after hearing all that. So let's dive into it a little bit deeper and maybe get a little stock pick action with Heather Brilliant, president and CEO of 
Diamond Hill. Heather, I'm exhausted just kind of running through that list. What are you watching most closely? Hi, Brian. It's a big week, it sounds like. Um, honestly, we're, at yeah. Diamond Hill, we really take a longer-term perspective. This is going to be a big week and really the kickoff of um, earnings season, as you mentioned. And um, I'm not trying to claim that we're overly optimistic about this earnings season. Honestly, I think, you know, there's some some news that you were all reporting earlier that more than 70% of CEOs are pretty pessimistic right now. And there's good reason for that. But, you know, as long-term investors, there's a real opportunity to look beyond the short term, the next couple of quarters, and really think about the businesses that are, you know, tried and true that will make it through to the other side and really deliver for investors. And so that's really how we try to think about it at Diamond Hill. And when I saw some of your picks, I thought, okay, CarMax. And kind of everything seems to be going against CarMax in one way. Interest rates are up. Prices are still up. Buyers seem to be balking. But there's got to be more to the story than just that. Well, I do think that it could be a pretty challenging year for CarMax. It's a situation where their earnings could end up getting worse before they get better. But ultimately, it's a really strong business with a very solid competitive position in a really fragmented market. So people are really worried about things like digital competition. And CarMax has invested really heavily in being able to compete against its digital native competitors that I think give it more of an omni-channel presence. And further, it, you know, while it will certainly be impacted by all of those economic factors that you just mentioned, it's a situation where it, it's not an overlevered company. You're really getting a solid balance sheet. They've made really great investment decisions over the past few years that we think will pay off in the long run. Yeah, and maybe have the ability and the size and scale to deal with all these headwinds a little bit better than anybody else, which kind of goes to what maybe another of the names you picked. And, and this is actually an ADR. It's a European-based company. We know all of Europe's problems, but it sounds like you're not worried that is going to impact Nestle. Right. Well, Nestle is a very unique business from the perspective that while there are lots of businesses that operate globally, Nestle operates in more than 160 countries. It's not really particularly exposed to Europe relative to really any other region of the world. But the reason why we think Nestle is really interesting here is twofold. First of all, the management team has takes a really long-term perspective themselves. They have been acquisitive when that makes sense, and they've been willing to pare back their portfolio to really focus on the areas where they have developed competitive advantages. And the second is they've just got really strong long-term oriented brands in a number of different sectors, areas like pet care, coffee, things that you know people tend to stick to their brands, even in a weaker economy. And so given all of that and their, their knowledge of how to navigate any economic situation, given their global presence, we really think Nestle looks interesting. Yeah. Heather Brilliant, Diamond Hill, CarMax. We got yogurt and pickup trucks, and we appreciate it. Heather Brilliant, thank you very much. Have a great day and a good week. Folks, we always appreciate you tuning in either live here on Worldwide Exchange, maybe on the radio, or tuning into the podcast later on. Either way, thank you very much. I'm off tomorrow. We're going to see you back here on Thursday as well. Squawk and the gang picking up all your coverage live today and most of the week from Davos, Switzerland. We'll see you tomorrow right here on Worldwide Exchange. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.